All right, let's see if we can get Joe on the line here. Hello? Hey, Joe. Um, listen, I thought we'd, uh, I thought we'd record a little pre-roll for our show. Oh, okay. So how are, how are you calling me? What technology are you using? It's, it's what we normally use for our guests. This is, you see, this is, this is what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You're, you're the gander. Huh. So you're Skyping me is what you're saying. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm Skyping you. You know, so what are we recording? This is the pre-roll for episode 99. Can you believe we've done 99 episodes? Wow. That's kind of amazing. 99 times. Yeah. Mm. Next episode is ex- episode 100. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, I guess that means we're about done. <laughs> Are we going to do a hypercritical? <laughs> we're going to do a hypercritical on this thing and end it at 100. <laughs> that was one of the saddest days no. of my life. You know, my, I almost said yeah, my lives. Boy. Hmm. Yeah, we we don't we don't want to uh, we don't want to end just yet. I think we've still got things to say. You certainly still got things to say, and I've got I've got bones to pick with what you say. So, <laughs> I think there are people who <laughs> think we've already said more than we have to say. <laughs> uh, listen, well, once so, again, they're wrong. I thought I'd call you because you know the, the, you're going to be live, and the listeners are about to hear you live in studio talking to our wonderful guest. But I thought I'd call you, even though you're on the road, just to do this little pre-roll thing to let listeners know that we're going to be, it's going to be a week off. It's going to take that long to prepare episode 100, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Um, and this, uh, you know, this episode is, is so great. And our guest was so terrific. Um, and, uh, yeah, we all need a little, uh, we need a little hiatus just to recover from the brilliance, I think. <laughs> we've, had, we've had a number of good episodes in a row now, haven't we? We, we really have. Listen, um, I, I think now is a good chance, though, for us to say, hey, it, you know, episode 100 is just going to be you and me. We're going to be dealing with an issue, at least one issue, but then also some feedback. And we've got a little bit of feedback queued up. But if people want to get in touch with us, Joe, to, to be part of episode 100, to celebrate the oral argument community, to celebrate, you know, we've been calling it America's Faculty Colloquium, <laughs> but I've looked at our download stats. That's not that we need to aim even higher. This is the world's faculty colloquium right here. Oh, wow. That's, that's so cool. It's global. We're going global. Well, well, you can't deny it. You look at where our downloads come from and basically the world, the world minus North Dakota. This is their <laughs> faculty colloquium. <laughs> that's, that's a little bit of a deep cut, although not so deep. That didn't go back that many episodes. So if, if people want to be a part of episode 100, Joe, how do, how do they get in touch with us? What do, what do they do? How do they, how do they dial us up? What they can do is they can, uh, Email us at oralargumentpodcast at gmail dot com. Of Boom. course, there's also there's also the Facebook page, yeah, uh, and there's also the Twitter. So we are oral argument on Facebook. We are at oral argument on Twitter, all one word, no funny business. And they tell me that that matters. The funny business matters, unlike on Gmail. Right in Twitter, it matters. Another deep cut, right? Right. Um, so if you want to, if you want to drop some deep cuts on us. If you want to cut us down, if you want to bring us up, oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. You know, the other thing, because I think now that we're about to enter season two of Oral Argument, because mm. that's what happens after episode 100, uh, we, need to, we need to bang this thing up a notch. Oh. So you need to tell people that you listen to the show. People need to tell others they listen to the show. Uh, so, so let me just say it like this. If you're listening now, you're, part, you're in at the ground floor. And now, like a pyramid scheme, you need to recruit others into the oral argument family. One way you can do that is to review us on iTunes. Even if you don't listen to us through iTunes, you don't even have to write a review. You just hit, need to hit five stars. <laughs> yep. You don't have to, you don't have to leave a review. You just hit five stars. You can leave a review. Now, if it's a bad review, 
why don't you hit us up with an email first, right, Joe? Absolutely. Let yeah. us uh, give, give us a chance to persuade you that we deserve five stars. <laughs> of course, if you if you click five stars, you can say whatever you darn well like. I don't care. You can strip the bark. You can strip the bark right off us as long as you give us five stars. Well, you there at the airport facility are literally about to go global, aren't you? You're so right. Yeah. Boy, I'm I'm jealous. I'm jealous. <laughs> I know. You actually like flying. I, I love it. I love travel. I love, I mean, look, look, just the other day I was coming back from, uh, from, an, from overseas and opened my window at 30,000 feet looking down on northern Newfoundland. I mean, how much would, if, if, you, if you could tell people, if, if you could say, hey, how much would you pay to be on top of a 30,000 foot mountain looking down on northern Newfoundland? Yeah, that, that'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah, but on the actual airplane, you know how much people can be bothered for that view? Yeah, I don't think I'll raise my shade. I got a movie on. That's yeah. what... <laughs> and, and I just want to offer a friendly amendment. Okay. Um, you didn't actually open your window. You opened the plastic shield in between you and your window. I opened as much window as you are allowed by federal law to open on an airplane. And I'm glad for that because <laughs> I really don't want to have your head sucked out the side of an airplane. I don't think that would happen. Bon voyage, Joe. Thanks. Take care. Okay. I haven't done this before. Yeah, we've barely done it before. Only like a hundred, <laughs> <laughs> only like a hundred times at this point. I think you are. This is. I know. I saw ninety nine. This is going to be. Yeah, they're, they're, you know, ninety nine is a number about which they sing songs. It is, especially yeah. if they're red balloons. Yeah. Well, I was thinking of bottles, but. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, which which one of you is Joe and which one Christian? Can is it possible to tell anymore? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's Christian. Yeah, this is me. This is me. Okay. This is Christian. Yeah, and this is Joe. And that's Joe. Hi, Joe. Hi, and thank you so much for joining us. This is great. You you um, you answered with a rapidity that is marvelous and to be admired. Why not? It sounded fun, and and I've never done it before. So it's exactly what we think. <laughs> That is the carefree, adventurous attitude of a future co-host of this program. That's right. <laughs> also, also, the idea of a podcast on a law review article is just too great. Yeah, well, that's the, that's our thought. You're singing our song. <laughs> uh, this is Lisa Heinzerling mm -hmm. uh, at Georgetown. Now, I'm hoping, Lisa, that we get to talk to you at some point, maybe not today, but maybe today, I'm fascinated to hear about the the casebook that you and Mark Tushnet did ten years ago now, um, in in the sort of ledge reg uh, first year course movement and your thoughts on how that's been going and uh, and your thoughts about putting a book like that together. It's a that's a topic that just fascinates me and and how you might relate your book to the legal process book from the the fifties and sixties and. Um, but but that's not the main thing we want to talk to you about. As fun as that would be. No, the main thing is, um, you know, I also teach legislation and regulation, and I'm particularly curious if you were to shorten legislation and regulation into two one-syllable words, how, how would you how would you say that, Lisa? Most important course. <laughs> <laughs> no, we mean. No. Would you call it ledge reg or leg reg or? You were asking for a blurb. I, I agree. It's really important. I don't know. I, I, I don't really like either one. I, I wonder whether we could just call it uh, administrative law or the regulatory state or the administrative state or something like that. Or maybe just law. That's what I used to say to my students as well. <laughs> yeah. That was what my preference. I think I only say I, I say this uh, out of, you know, on episode 99 with nothing but affection for my co-host, but 
ledge reg is an abomination. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I have to be a fan of at least one abomination because you're the one coming out with words like webinar and cyberloquium and all kinds of other true abominations. How about modern law or modern 21st law is good. century law? Mm. How about it's been almost a century? Let's get used to yeah, it. Yeah, right. Where do you put it in the sort of tradition of the legal process, Hart and Sachs, Harvard kind of thing? Well, I think that depends on how you do the class. I think Mark and I tried to place it more in that tradition and try to update that by looking at different kinds of strategies the modern administrative state might use to tackle problems. And we used risk to human health as our basic problem and tried to introduce students to strategies like technology-based regulation, disclosure requirements, uh, cost-benefit analysis, and, and so forth, so that they could be um, understand these different, different frameworks that legislatures have used beyond the frameworks that the common law would use. I don't, I don't think everybody takes uh, the courts in the same light or, or teaches the course in that way. But you, the way you're describing it, there's a real continuity with the tort class and the criminal law class and sort of weaving in the public law layer that comes into the picture uh, in the in the 20s and 30s and 40s in a way that I think it makes all of those different pots of stuff richer and more interesting. Yeah, that's what we tried to do. I think that that uh, the idea was this was a first year course. What we designed was was designed to be for first year students who were in the midst of taking those other more traditional common law courses. And they could then see how um, those the, the doctrines in those courses and the institutional frameworks there were not sufficient to deal with lots of big social problems. Again, we dealt with risk, but you can imagine other other problems as well. And so it was it was aimed at sort of speaking to students who were in the midst of those studies and having them understand why law had turned so decisively in favor of administrative regimes and, and statutes. And so it goes beyond, maybe this is where we can turn to your article, in the 20th century, we move beyond precedential reasoning as the primary form of legal analysis and clearly into an era. And you could – I'm sure there are plenty of historians who would say it has always been this way in one form or another. You know, Take that as a given. But clearly into the terrain of like what kind of institution is going to decide this question and how are other institutions going to evaluate that decision-making process? And then what role should the public play in that institutional web, right? Yes. Right. So that the students would not just be thinking about the courts, particular appellate courts, but all of the different institutions of government and trying to figure out both which one is best at dealing with a particular problem or comparatively best. And then also what kinds of decision making frameworks those particular institutions had at hand. We're still fighting about this today. We're fighting about what institutions decide what and what role the courts should play in that and what role the people should play in it and in what way. And this paper, Power Cannons, that you have is, you know, it, 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 it's really foundational of this fight, right? I mean, it, it, it's at a very basic level about what role the administrative state should play in the lives of the people and in making law, right? Yes. 
that's the, the uh, origin, in fact, of the title of the power canons. Obviously, the idea is who has the power to make these kinds of decisions and who has the power to make uh, the choice about what, which decisions are particularly problematic. And so that as I started to read the cases uh, and, and to think about them, the cases that I discuss here, I thought at first, well, this is all about whether administrative agencies should make the choices about statutes um, that they have. But then as I looked deeper, I thought this is really also about whether Congress gets to make such choices or whether Congress is free to leave language broad and open-ended. Um, and so it became a, an even bigger fight to me as I read and thought more and implicated really both of the representative branches of government that Congress and the executive. Now, I have no idea where all of our listeners are going to be with this. And I think it makes sense for this piece to start at a very basic level, right? Cool. So yes. con Congress passes statutes. Everybody knows that, right? You know, this is uh, schoolhouse rocks, right? Congress can pass a law and that law can say things like, you know, if you are going to uh, be making cement or if you're a cement factory, then you have to install the best available control technology, or you have to uh, ensure that your air emissions are consistent with the public health to the extent practicable or something along those lines. And, and there can be kind of a lot, of, obviously there's a lot of wiggle room because, you know, I, I establish a cement plant and, and I've got some kind of, uh, some kind of smokestack going up and stuff's going into the air. And then the question is, well, does that meet the standard? You know, I've installed some things in there, but is it, is it a control technology? Is it the best of it? Who, who knows? If I'm going to be charged with violating that statute, either if, if I'm sued by a private entity, if that's permitted, then a court's going to have to make that decision. Maybe, you know, this is, again, uh, before we get to the administrative state. But if the executive is going to charge me with violation of that statute, it's got to make a decision about well, what that means, you know, in, in order to decide whether to charge me. Now, we may ultimately wind up in court where the interpretive problem will be, will be fought out. But with the rise of administrative agencies, now Congress can speak to or even through, depending on how you look at it, those agencies to say, yeah, here's what we mean. We mean best available control technology, et cetera, et cetera. And now the agency elaborates what that means in greater detail for the purpose of carrying out that statute. We can maybe get into the multiple meanings of, of Chevron and whether it's about delegation to the agency or, or it's in, you know, there's something inextricably bound with executing the law that involves interpretation. There's all this to, to think about. But administrative agencies, the Environmental Protection Agency in this case and other agencies in other cases will administer those statutes uh, on behalf of the executive, which is charged with executing the laws. And in order to do that, it will have to be, it will have to interpret the statutes. And one of the big questions is once you get into court, when the executive has charged someone with violation of the statute, or even if there's a citizen suit, but the executive has before uh, come out with an interpretation of that statute, what do we do with those interpretations? How do we decide what the statute means when the executive says, we think this is what it means? I've said a lot of words, and I'm wondering if I've kind of summarized the predicament of statutory interpretation in the age of the administrative state well enough so that people can understand your, your piece. I think so. If I may, I just add one other uh, fact, which is that you've set it up almost as if the agency is a necessary evil or it's kind of incidental and it, it does work if uh, in, in uh, uh, you know, maybe kind of not very common circumstances. But the point I would say is that in modern statutes, Congress pervasively relies on agencies 
like the Environmental Protection Agency or the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or the Food and Drug Administration to actually give life to the statutes it passes. And so it's not only when the agency decides someone's violating the statute that the agency has to do the kind of work that you're talking about. But Congress, usually when it passes statutes today, explicitly contemplates that the agency will have to do a whole bunch of work up front before that statute really even gets off the ground. And so you see in modern statutes hundreds hundreds of instances where Congress says to the agency, you need to define this term or um, uh, provides that uh, the statutory framework will get off the ground once implementing regulations have been passed. And so in many cases, the agency's interpretation of the statute is part of just even just getting that statutory framework working to begin with. And then secondly, also as part of what's called a rulemaking proceeding, which is a pretty uh, intense uh, proceeding in which the agency provides an opportunity for comment on a proposal, public comments, and then the agency makes a final decision. And so to for, for those who aren't familiar with this framework, it might help to understand, one, this is pervasive. This is, this is a regime, a scheme that Congress has come to rely on. Uh, before statutes even get off the ground, really. And uh, and secondly, a lot of times the agency is operating in a context where it's setting out ground rules through rules. It's, it's, right. it's passing rules to implement statutes. Yeah, and, and a lot of what your piece is addressed to is, is, I think, a fight between two different ideas about how laws should be made, um, one of which, you know, I think I agree with you that it's not even possible anymore. But if we did away with agencies, if we didn't have them and Congress wanted to speak to some of the important questions of our times that involve necessarily lots of data gathering and analysis and expertise, it would have to basically replicate the agency structure within the Congress. Right. And it would have to have streamlined ways of passing laws. Yes, it, it would need the kind of expertise that we have in the agencies. We have we have hundreds of thousands, actually millions of employees. If you count all of the different offices and institutions of the executive branch who have a wide variety of expertise and uh, they spend countless hours on these rules. And uh, Congress obviously does not have that capacity. And so if we wanted to enact rules for behavior that took account of expertise, you're absolutely right. We need to replicate. And, you know, this this system, this lesson, the lesson that's just been observed is something we've actually known for a very long time. So if if listeners are thinking, well, this is a particularly modern or or peculiarly 21st century sort of perspective, um, that's not true. Um, Exhibit A in the stuff I know about because of the focus I have in IP law is in the in the wind up to the 1790 Patent Act, which was when the first U.S. Patent Act was passed. People had been petitioning Congress for Congress to give them patents to pass them legislatively. And Congress very quickly, after trying to create some committees to look at some of the patent applications that they had received as petitions, Congress very quickly realizes, oh, my gosh, we can't possibly do this. Mm-hmm. We'll get a bunch of petitions we're not going to be able to handle this. We need to create an executive board uh, and we'll put the secretary of state, Thomas Jefferson. We'll put, 
the attorney general, and I can't remember who the third person was. But so they very quickly reached the conclusion, oh, this sounds like a job for the executive. And this is leading up to 1790. So we've known this for 220 years. And that's because they had a desire to give patents, right? I mean, they actually wanted to do that thing. Yeah, they want to set up a program that is, in essence, a regulatory administrative program, which is giving people enforceable property rights against third parties. But they realize that the individual facts and circumstances matter. Right. Did you really invent something new and important in a technological advance? Well, okay, then we need to set up a system that's going to do that. Right. Yeah. What's interesting about that example is not only is it longstanding and shows this problem has been with us since the beginning, but it also points out that this this system doesn't necessarily have a particular philosophical valence. One could want the government to step in to protect property interests and equally need this kind of system as if one wants uh, to protect people against economic interests. Very quite true. That's true. But I I was just going to refer back to what I see as kind of the duality that is at play in in some of these cases we're going to talk about in a second that give rise to to the power cannons. And if what you want to do is have a government which is involved dynamically in thinking about the consequences in society of regulation or of not regulating, of passing laws or not passing laws. In other words, it wants to intervene in beneficial ways to help society. It wants to do this. Then you're going to need something like the agencies because the alternative is either in Congress, right, in a weird form or outside of Congress in the executive branch because the alternative is is Congress speaking in kind of Ten Commandment-like terms, right, detailing broad powers or, or, you know, broad regulations, which will be interpreted, I guess, by courts. Right. And unless courts replicate the whole agency structure and expertise, then it's basically going to be inherently deregulatory. Yes. And I think that's part of the normative critique that you make throughout uh, of these cases, right, that there's this battle going on. To what degree can Congress rely on being able to legislate for purposes and ensure that those purposes will find expression in kind of detailed, data-driven, or at least dynamically responsive regulation, right, by the agencies. Isn't that what's at stake here? Yes, that's absolutely what's at stake. And what I have found striking in these cases and in these interpretive principles is how clear it becomes, once you consider them, uh, that the court has planted a flag uh, on the side against an ambitious regulatory state. And I guess my point with the patent example was that to the extent you see the court planting that flag, uh, it's not just law office history, it's bad law office history. I mean, I'm no historian. Uh, so people ought to realize from my example about 1790 that that even this one-eyed squirrel ha- can find that nut. That's how easy it is to find, okay? Uh, and so if, if one were trying to really... I think address the what's at stake, you would realize that we've had centuries of experience with the realization that this complex dance of congressional statement of general goal and executive implementation of complex facts on the ground that remain dynamically responsive, that's been our situation for a few hundred years. And maybe it's always the tension. Yes. You don't have this libertarian sort of deus ex machina thing whooping in from the side and saying, oh, but the night watchman state, that's all we need. And it, this, it, that's silly in 1790. Well, it, it's a position in seven. Right? It's 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 this tension between 
deregulatory interests and regulatory interests, which is being played out again and again in many contexts. And this is one of them. That's right. And part of the uh, problem I also see is that the court doesn't really mean to do away with all of it. I, I just don't think I don't think they have the votes for that. I don't think they have the gumption or the nerve for that. Because to do away with this entire structure would be so deeply disruptive and also unsettling to a lot of um, the justice's own preferred philosophical interests. What they do instead, they they kind of patrol the border and are striking at statutory understandings that they particularly dislike. And as I've said, those statutory understandings mostly have to do with an agency acting aggressively to um, address a particular social problem. And so that, to me, is is part of what's wrong with this. If they really said, "Look, we we have we are uh, going to not go back to a different understanding of the Constitution, but actually invent a whole new understanding <laughs> inconsistent with historical practice, and we're going to wipe all of this out." Well, at yeah. least that would be somewhat honest. I wouldn't agree with it. I don't think it's right, but I, I think uh, at least it would be honest. But here instead, they seem to pick out cases just at their own whim and decide this has gone too far. And that's not principled, and and it's asymmetrical in terms of its political thrust. I, I don't know if I would go so far as to say that these are – well, maybe I would. I, I, as Get whether, it out, Christian. Well, try, I'm just thinking of try. whether you – know, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that these are you know, agents in place, to use an old term that, that Justice Rehnquist used in another context <laughs> – uh, you know, or, or not, you know, were they purposefully that? But but Justice Chief Justice Roberts has told us directly, and you, you cite this in the paper, and this is I, – I certainly have given this case to my students, and it, it's very direct in City of Arlington against FCC. He says, it would be a bit much to describe the result as, quote, the very definition of tyranny, but the danger posed by the growing power of the administrative state cannot be dismissed. Yes. I mean, it's, it's a rather shocking statement, isn't it? Yes. Very shocking. And uh, in dissent, it's worth noting, but in dissent joined by uh, Justice Alito and by Justice Kennedy, who in all of this criticism and debate that's been emerging about the administrative state has remained relatively quiet. And yet he joins this extraordinary dissent in which Chief Justice Roberts, as you say, says it would be just a bit much. Yeah, just a just a bit much. Just a, a, bit, just a, a bit. bit, a bit much to call the administrative state the very definition of very tyranny. Definition. And what's interesting too, about it, it, that, to be fair, he says the the growing power is the very different. But you know, right. whatever. But right? it's very vague. It's it's like he is really fed up with the power of the administrative state. But he doesn't do anything in that dissent to tell us exactly what he means. He doesn't tell us the exact constitutional underpinnings of his anxiety and his frustration, and he doesn't. Say anything about the tyranny on the other side of regulation, which is to say the lack of freedom of those who don't have environmental protection or who aren't protected from harms in the workplace or who aren't protected from employers who uh, who take away their wages. So he, he has one definition of tyranny in mind, and that's the tyranny of the regulator. I have to say it is an, it is an unusual amount of id for the chief justice in that paragraph. And we're going to link this up in the show notes that because it, it's about like the reams of regulation, just the amount and then into every nook and cranny of I don't have the text in front of me, but, you know, it's about the pervasiveness right. into every nook and cranny of modern life and the Absolutely. reams of regulations. It reads it reads like a chamber of commerce and an especially purple chamber of commerce filing at the court where there's sort of the the cries of the rentier class about 
how you're you're drubbing me with all these regs and it's just so painful. Exactly. It's it's that but that's not an unusual view, right? It's not No, it's, it's not. He almost comes close to counting the pages of the Federal Register, which is what another move of the conservative groups against regulation. I mean, talking about the reams of regulation. It's it's very unfocused. Uh, but clearly mad. The inversions are quite mysterious to me in a sense as well, because City of Arlington is uh, written by Justice Scalia, and he's using a broad approach to Chevron deference in an FCC case about reviewing the building of antennas and this sort of thing, I think. And, And Chevron deference, just this is the deference that the court will give to an agency when an agency interprets in an area of ambiguity. So yeah, statute, which we which talked about in other we'll episodes. And we'll link those up. Yeah. Pretty standard, pretty standard move. But I think City of Arlington has to be understood in a context where you've got the earlier Brand X decision, uh, another telecom case where the court concludes that where an ambiguous statute had been interpreted first by a court and then by an agency precisely because agencies get the call to fit, to clarify an ambiguity, the agency decision can countermand the judicial decision from which Scalia strenuously dissented, right? So you've got this sort of odd ping-ponging in telecom cases, which is how I think about them at one level, but then there are also administrative law cases more generally, which is another level that you can talk about that. And so part of what seems to me to be going on here is, is and maybe it explains why sometimes the analysis is unfocused or vague, is because it speaks to this, uh, the sort of shrinking of judicial power with the expansion of administrative power, right? That they're talking about their own role without necessarily talking about it. Although in Brandex, it becomes quite explicit. They, they have to talk about the size of the judicial yeah, role. Yeah, but the judicial role kind of fades into the woodwork, right? That's like taken for granted. Yes. It's the administrative role, which is the exception, which is the unusual, which is the intervention. The judicial role is just the default, right? And right. That's- Except I think, I think that's what uh, Justice Scalia was upset about in Brand X. And I think that's partly what uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts was upset about in City of Arlington. I think they see their job as to say what the law is. When they defer to agencies under the Chevron principle, they see themselves as diminishing. And I think you see this in separate opinions by the conservative justices talking about the level of deference to give to agency interpretations. They, they, to me, seem very concerned that they won't have as much power to say what the law is. Another place you see this is that agencies often, as you know, interpret their own regulations and get a lot of deference in that interpretation as well. And in the opinions expressing discomfort with that kind of deference, the justices, again, it seems to me, are also concerned about about their own role. So in, in a way, this is them guarding their own turf. And trying to constrain as you point out in this article, which we'll get to, uh, congressional power. That's right. Like, does Congress have the power either to place a decision in the agency or even to rely on the agency in order to accomplish its purposes? And, and it's that latter one which is under attack in, these, uh, in the cases establishing what you call the power canons, right? Should we, should we talk about those? Like the utility error regulatory group case, King against Burwell and Michigan against EPA? Uh, I'll put the utility error regulatory group, which I'll call UARG, uh, and the case called King versus Burwell together. Uh, Both of them declined to defer to an agency interpretation of a statute. 
And that would be, as we've talked about, the usual course under the Chevron doctrine would be to defer. But in those cases, the court uh, went out of its way to say that it was not deferring and was not deferring in part because the question that was uh, presented in those cases was really important. Either it was really important because it was economically and politically significant, that's the UR case against EPA, or it was really important because it was central to the statutory scheme. And so those cases set up the idea that when you have a really big issue, then it may be that a court will not defer to the agencies um, that, that has been charged with implementing a statute. In a third case, Michigan versus EPA, the court was dealing with an EPA decision to regulate power plants under the Clean Air Act. And in deciding to regulate power plants, the EPA had uh, stated that it would not consider costs. And the statutory language that was crucial there was the word appropriate. The Congress had said you should decide whether it's appropriate to regulate power plants under this particular provision of the Clean Air Act and EPA in doing that did not consider costs. And here, and here's where the power canon comes in, here, not only the majority opinion written by Justice Scalia, but the dissenting opinion written by Justice Kagan basically set up a presumption that agencies need to consider costs before regulating unless Congress provides otherwise. And so that what you have with these three cases, you have these new interpretive principles that, one, disfavor agency interpretations in particular circumstances. The big cases understood in a couple of different ways or the the case in which the agency does not consider costs. Uh, So you set up those interpretive principles. But to me, even more dramatic and problematic is the fact that in those cases, the court basically said to Congress, you need to speak clearly if you want to give this kind of authority to administrative agencies. And a trouble with that principle is that, first of all, it's not always easy to speak clearly, especially to speak clearly as the court understands clarity. And second of all, in some of these cases, Congress had used broad language, I think precisely in order to open up the possibility that it it couldn't foresee everything. And so it wanted to bring in circumstances that were outside of its understanding at the time. And what the court is basically saying is you need to speak clearly, even when things are uncertain. That's really hard to do. You know, I detect really two critiques in your, I mean, there are many critiques in your piece, but but one one is that, as you just said, it puts a it puts Congress to the burden of speaking clearly about on a more specific level about what it wishes to do and how it wishes to intervene in the economy. And, and that I want to talk more about in a second. But it also works retroactively because, you know, m- most of the regulations are based on statutes passed back when Congress used to legislate regularly, you know, in the past, <laughs> back, in the good, back in the good old days where Congress <laughs> passed laws. Almost all of these interpretations are going to be of, of statutes where Congress has already spoken. I think the first problem, I mean, even if it didn't have the retroactivity question, this sort of, you know, Congress has to speak with much more concrete detail when it wants to speak elliptically. Okay. Yes. That's a completely incoherent command. Yes. Uh, as, as, as Lisa points out, in a few different ways in the paper, to, to great effect. I mean, in a way, the, the, the incoherence of it highlights the fact that the, the court has to say that because it has to recognize congressional supremacy. Right. Or it has to be prepared to stake out a constitutional 
norm or claim, right. Right. which it isn't going to do. Right. It doesn't it, It's making clear that it's not it does not think it's speaking in a constitutional register. So it creates this very strange situation, right? We, we, we're signaling that we think Congress is ultimately in charge, but we do it with a, <laughs> with a sentence that just sounds completely bonkers. If, they, if you think about it for a minute, it's, it's as, as, as I've said, and as you're saying, it's incoherent. And the only basis for it could be that the courts thinks, you know what, we don't, we don't have a majority. We don't even have the appetite for a thoroughgoing constitutional revision, you know, a, a change to the administrative state. So we'll just do these kind of one-off cases basically where we feel like it. I mean, I guess I got a couple things here. One is that I've called this like a level four theory elsewhere. But if you believe like Scalia that the overriding theory of law has to be one of democracy and accountability, right, and maintaining where possible clear lines of accountability between decision makers and the people subject to those decisions, then then maybe you you favor a clear statement rule. I, again, I, there are all kinds of problems with this, which we can get into, right? Because it's not clear how the lines of accountability go and et cetera, et cetera. But that would explain why you would give the power to Congress to do things, but only if it speaks, you know, clearly so that people know who's responsible for, for a particular decision. We can talk about critiques of that, but will you guys forgive me for reading something? Sure. We, Go for it. Which means you'll forgive me, not that you like that I'm doing it, right? Oh, it, de- it depends entirely on what you read. Well, it's written by Judge uh, Posner. This is what I give to my students ah, in, okay. in, in Legre. He was my boss. I and, love Judge Posner. Well, he, he, this is his critique of Scalia and Garner's. You know, well, book. I know I'm yeah. going to enjoy this. Yeah. So, but I think it's totally – it's a critique of textualism, but I think it's the same thing, right? It's a, it's a critique of constraining an, an institution from speaking in general terms in order to accomplish actual aims, right? So he says, a legislature is thwarted. When a judge refuses to apply its handiwork to an unforeseen situation that is encompassed by the statute's aim but is not a good fit with its text, ignoring the limitations of foresight and also the fact that a statute is a collective product that often leaves many questions of interpretation to be answered by the courts because the legislators cannot agree on the answers, the textual originalist demands that the legislature think through myriad hypothetical scenarios and provide for all of them explicitly rather than rely on courts to be sensible. In this way, textualism hobbles legislation and thereby tilts toward, quote, small government and away from, quote, big government, which in modern America is a conservative preference. Isn't that basically your normative critique? But, you know, if I could just change the words around here, right, from statutory interpretation to Chevron, and I would get the same critique, right? Yes. Yes. In fact, I will, uh, I'm going to look up the source of that quote right after this and add it to my article. I think he puts it, uh, obviously, better better than anybody could. The idea that this instruction to Congress to speak clearly is an asymmetrical kind of instruction. That is, it'll prefer small to big government. It uh, hobbles congressional action, uh, congressional choices to give rather broad instructions to agencies because it knows that it doesn't know what it's doing. (laughs) and can't foresee everything. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely the critique of the asymmetry. It's not the entire critique of all of what the the things happening in these cases. But I think that's an excellent summary. Yeah, and it gets to the heart of the power, like the power yes. asymmetry is what... And- it's sort of a, and it depicts the relationship as, and, and I think this does seem like a, one of the fundamentals in, in legal, in approaches to law. There is an antagonistic, uh, a perspective that uh, courts and, and legislatures are antagonists and a perspective that they are fundamentally cooperative in nature, mm-hmm. uh, which I associate 
both with uh, Justice Breyer and and Judge Posner. It's just a fundamentally different outlook about what you think the overall project is. And therefore, and therefore, what a court ought to be giving as feedback to a legislature at, you know, hey, at T sub one, you did this. Here we are at T sub N doing something else. And and how do we get this cooperatively achieved? That's the that's the Breyerian take. Or, you know, well, is this me throwing another stick in the spokes? Oh, well. That's the what I that's yeah, a view I associate I, I, more with Judge, uh, Judge Easterbrook. Well, I want to come back to this accountability notion and, and get Lisa's take on this as well, because I think what you have are people falling on different sides of the solution to a problem which will never be resolved perfectly, like the fundamental problem of, of governance that that actually HLA Hart identified in the concept of law. Right. This is the core and the penumbra problem. Right. That as, as he says, you know, we are. Uh, we are men and not gods, is the, the phrase that he uses, right? We have limitations of aim and limitations of foresight. We can't foresee all the problems. We can't – and we and we never have a complete 100 percent specified version of what it is we're trying to accomplish, right? There's always some fuzziness. You know, how do you respond to that if what you're trying to do is democratic, if you're trying to encourage accountability for decisions so that the people themselves can take responsibility for the decisions of their agents? One solution is I don't want any penumbra. I want all core. And what Hart says, right, is that you're just you're never going to get there entirely, right? There's always going to be fuzziness. He uses that in part to, and Fuller would say you're never going to get there at all, and right? Because crit- it's all fuzz. Well, the, and and the crits say that, right? And so partly what Hart is doing is saying, no, there are cores, there there is meaning, right? It's not all you know nonsense. And, and people take different sides of that, right? Whether there sure actually enough. is a core ever of meaning that is you know uncontroversial. It gets back to last week's episode with Larry Solom in a way, right? Right. But people are coming down on different sides of this. So I, I think the the consensus with the modern administrative state is that there will be this kind of cooperation that you talk about, Joe, right? That the Congress will specify broad aims. The administrative machinery through the agencies will make those aims more specific and elaborate them and respond dynamically to change, how change circumstances show us that those aims have become different, right? right. That, you know, carbon dioxide, yeah, it's a real problem, right? Uh, and <laughs> it might not have seemed that way when, when, this, when the act right. was, first, was first passed. And if you don't like it, Congress can amend the statute, right? So there's a, there's a dialogue going on between Congress and the agency and, and the people can hold the Congress accountable for not doing that, right? right? For not responding in that dialogue appropriately, or they can hold the president responsible for an out of control agency or something like that, right? So, so th- they would see accountability in a more complicated web of institutional actors. Whereas I think the conservatives are saying the administrative state is just way too big. Mm-hmm. The lines of accountability are way too attenuated. And what an agency does is hard now to pin down to any particular actor. What are you going to do? Not vote for the president because of some labeling? regulation passed down in some, you know, a particular agency? Are you not going to vote for your incumbent congressperson because of that? I mean, so, so their, their claim is that's a problem. And it's funny how this like basic debate about the core and the penumbra <laughs> comes back to Chevron deference, right? And, and, and to what extent you let agencies interpret. You, you're looking quizzical at me. Is this- well, yeah. I mean, I just think we're it's the one of those as so often happens. You tug one little thread, and you and the entire blanket starts moving toward you. So you, you it's it's complicated. Yes, and and they if they don't have an outlet, clearly four of the current justices have a great deal of unhappiness with the way the administrative straight state is structured. 
And uh, they have no constitutional outlet for that at the moment. They don't have the votes to do any major renovation of the administrative state. As I've said, I don't think they themselves necessarily have the appetite to do that in a full-scale way. And so you see these, basically, I will say, emotions coming out in, uh, in cases in which I'm not sure that they're appropriately expressed, and yet they don't have another outlet. So since they don't have... Uh, uh, the votes or the stomach for a full-on constitutional attack on the administrative state, they'll take what they can get, which are these statutory cases, which people don't pay as much attention to, which come up all of the time. And every so often they can get the votes to uh, strike down what an agency has done to disagree with it. And in the cases I'm mentioning, to assert a principle that goes beyond that case and may well send a signal to lower courts, and I will say to agencies and to Congress, to watch their backs. And King against Burwell, in this respect, seems the seems like the oddest of the three. Can you, can you, we've, we've talked about King against Burwell a few times, but what is your take on that canon in particular, and, and whether we're headed for sort of a post-Chevron crack-up, where something bigger is going to happen? Yeah. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that was, that was, in a way, the to me, overall, the most appealing result, um, the most appealing process, in a way, where the court brushed back the argument that the four words established by the states in this massive Affordable Care Act meant that there could not be federal subsidies available on federal exchanges. And I think that result seems correct as a matter of statutory interpretation. There was a, uh, a way to that result, which was pretty straightforward, which would be to say, let's look at the full statute, the purposes, the history, the language, and see whether we think that those four words undo the structure of the law. And the answer could have been no. But instead, Chief Justice Roberts came to that result circuitously and said, well, first, let's think about whether the Internal Revenue Service gets deference for its interpretation consistent with the result I just described. And he said, no, uh, because this is a very big issue, very great economic and political magnitude. It's central to the underlying statute. And we don't think the IRS is the expert, the relevant expert. And therefore, this is not a case for the IRS. That was completely unnecessary. You could have taken the more direct route, which would have been a standard for people who aren't uh, slaves to the um, particular statutory text, and even those who are might have found that that was an appealing route uh, in this case. And instead, he takes the long way around and says, this isn't a case for the IRS. And I think that can only be understood in light of what we've talked about, which is his dissent in uh, City of Arlington, where he expresses so much anxiety about the administrative state and great and happiness with the court's decision to apply Chevron deference even to questions about the scope of an agency's authority. This is, in a way, his his uh, payback for losing in that case, I think. The only purpose of that passage in the King versus Burwell case is to serve notice that sometimes Chevron doesn't apply at all, and it doesn't apply in circumstances that are uh, new, which is when it's very, very important question, when it's central to the scheme, and when the court doesn't think you're an expert. Do you want to talk about how these interpretive, this interpretive move, whether they've consolidated into canons or not, is a response to what I would consider to be three 
devastating losses of kind of anti-administrative state people, whether they're conservatives or not, over the last century or more. And this is a way of kind of clawing back at a at a very small level. Maybe it's a last gasp and maybe it's the beginning of something, depending on how, how things turn out. But those three, two of them you talk about in the paper and, and one of them you don't, but I know you're aware of, at least I don't think you do. And that, well, let me start with that one. Uh, the Commerce Clause, right, as a substantive restriction on what Congress can do. Mm-hmm. You can go this far, but not that far. You know, everyone's familiar with, you know, the fact that before the New Deal, it was a serious restriction on what Congress could do and whether it could regulate interstate activities or not. The New Deal happens and it basically loses all force as a restraint on Congress's ability to regulate the economy. We see a little bit of retrenchment of that in the 90s, beginning with this case Lopez and then this Violence Against Women Act case. And, and you see the court falling into what I would characterize as the old trap of thinking there has to be a line and then trying to make some kind of direct, indirect regulation. And, and it's ultimately you know not going to work because you can't find a coherent line. But regardless of how you feel about that, the conservatives clearly lost that battle around the time of the New Deal. And although they've clawed back a little bit, it doesn't serve as a serious constraint. Okay, the other two really quickly are the substantive due process doctrine associated with Lochner, which again is a substantive restraint on what Congress can do, which finds at least some support in the Constitution. Again, after the New Deal, that's wiped away. You know, regulation of economic activities is just not going to be struck down on due process grounds, absent some other kind of violation of rights. And the third one is the so-called non-delegation doctrine. And this is gets closer to the kind of core penumbra distinction we made a second ago, that Congress cannot give basically lawmaking authority to agencies. Congress has to make the decisions and therefore it has to pass at least statutes that that guide the agencies according to some intelligible principle and how much that means, what what it means is had been up in the air. But the non-delegation doctrine became, again, after the New Deal, kind of a dead letter. You see an attempted revival with this American trucking case around 2000, uh, but that fails. And interestingly enough, in an opinion written by Scalia. So those are the three, you know, devastating losses and that have kind of uncorked the administrative state in ways that lots of people find beneficial, but some people find for philosophical, ideological, business, whatever reasons, regrettable. And they want to, you know, relitigate those losses. And maybe this is a way of doing that, but they haven't taken it on directly, as you say. Instead, we see expressions of kind of raw emotion, like the paragraph we've been talking about by Chief Justice Roberts in in City of Arlington. And then we find doctrinal developments and interpretation that have the effect of cutting back on Congress's power through clear statement rules. But chipping bit by bit. But chipping bit by bit in ways that are not detectable as an assault on... Because they're not in a constitutional register. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. They're not, they don't even mention it. It's really the most passive version of a passive doctrine, which is the doctrine of avoiding constitutional questions through statutory interpretation. This isn't even mentioning not only the constitutional provisions they think they're interpreting, but the avoidance doctrine itself. And so it's just, it's just fundamentally opaque and actually dishonest, I think. Well, and so they've turned it into a passive-aggressive doctrine. I mean, it's that's not, right. it's, right. not exactly. it's not a passive well, I mean, virtue. I, you know, no, no, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I long wanted to write an article called the Passive-Aggressive Doctrine. <laughs> 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 well, just like Congress is a multi-member body, and that's one of the complications here in, in thinking about AIM, right. uh, so too the so Court is a multi-member body, and that can at times dilute what they're saying, change what they're saying. You know, Thomas has always been upfront about one. Well, you, you tell the story in the paper about his increased expression of his desire to revisit the non-delegation doctrine. Right. Scalia, Scalia obviously, is the author of the opinion saying we're not going to do that. 
um, right. overturning an opinion by Judge Ginsburg, not Justice Ginsburg. This is the judge on the D.C. Circuit who was trying to revive it uh, in American trucking. So and I don't know, I haven't done the kind of the history of the other members of the conservative wing of the court as to, you know, their taste for actually clawing back the administrative state. And so whether they are seeing these doctrines as, as sensible because they have kind of conservative priors and they and and so more scrutiny of, of uh, administrative programs has some kind of emotional resonance with them or actually whether they see these as agents in place in an attempt to do what they don't want to kind of frontally litigate directly, right, which is these New Deal losses. Yes, I, I, I think it would be hard to not see if by agents in place you mean kind of agents ready to be activated, right? Yeah. So you in know, future, and, yes. and, and, and as you point out in the article, yes. the lower courts have already taken up with gusto Absolutely. some of these power candidates, right? Know this. The justices must know this. If they don't, it's a kind of malpractice. They can't say something uh, that is so dramatic and also unnecessary in a case without having it be uh, be taken seriously. Chief Justice Roberts had to know what he was doing in Burwell. It's unthinkable that he didn't. And that same thing for UARG, to talk about uh, important questions and to revive that after another case had seemed to dispense with it. They know what they're doing. Yeah, I just I just wonder if, if, if they see this as a sensible and kind of ideologically congenial adjustment of the administrative state, or if they see this as incremental relitigation of the basic issues on which the conservatives lost in the New Deal. I, those are really different attitudes, right? And I, How would we know? But they, yeah, well, and they don't even I, have I, to I decide in their own minds. Since they right. don't say anything about it, they're avoiding it. Chief Justice Roberts, if you think about it, in the city of Arlington, he had the freedom to say exactly what he was thinking. He's writing in dissent. He's got two other justices, but he may or may not care about that. But he's clearly writing something that that he um, where he wants to plant a flag. And even there, he doesn't say what the constitutional basis of his frustration and anxiety is. So I don't know. He hasn't had to decide. He's just really mad. <laughs> and it came out there and it seemed constitutionally inspired, but he didn't say exactly what the extent of it is or what the source of it is. And now with these very sneaky uh, doctrines that rely on uh, on kind of understandings about what Congress should do and how it should speak more clearly, he, I think, probably sees even less of a need to express what's truly at wrong. And the, and the um, byproduct of that, which, as I say at the end of the article, I think would please people who share the same anxieties but are very bad for everyone else. The, the byproduct is everyone is anxious about the status, the legal status of the administrative state. You know, agencies wonder, are they going to get deference under Chevron? Congress, if it ever uh, uh, lumbers to its feet and passes legislation again, will wonder, right. well, how clearly does it have to speak? What does it need to say in order to overcome these principles? The rest of us wonder, what does it take to actually pursue an ambitious regulatory agenda to a lawful conclusion. And so everybody is kind of anxious. For somebody who likes small government, that anxiety is really productive because it takes action to actually address uh, problems. Now, you you wrote about this anxiety from the insider's perspective in this piece about inside the EPA and the Obama White House, right? Yes. Would you describe it? And maybe you can just say a few words about that. But would you describe this as anxiety about you know, if, if we don't appear to do something about overreach, if we don't act carefully, then the conservatives will have a winning election argument and 
the courts will turn over and eventually the you know we'll we'll lose these major battles we won in the new deal is that the kind of thing or is it that there's an actual kind of technocratic almost chicago school <laughs> you know ideal that no this is the right way to administer the administrative state right through kind of consolidated cba and very careful analysis of costs and benefits what how, how did you come out? Oh, uh, I, I'm I'm confused about those two those two questions a little bit. But let me see what I can what I can do with it. That, 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 that's what I special in, specialize in. <laughs> that, that's why people it, listen to the show. We confuse each other all the time. I don't, I don't think it's that. I don't think it's so much that I'm worried about somebody winning or losing the election based on responses to the idea of an overactive administrative state. I'm worried about the people in the institutions that are charged with solving our problems, people in the drinking water program, people in uh, the program aimed at workplace health risks, people in programs that are aimed at uh, protecting consumers from financial risks. Those, those, people in those programs don't know the extent of their authority. Right. Like I said, Congress, if they want to respond to a problem, they want to beef up authority. Uh, I think these principles leave them in uh, of a state of uncertainty about exactly what they need to do. So that even just the existing institutions, uh, I think, are in a state of uncertainty. Let me give you an example that may make this clear. Congress has been considering legislation to reform toxic substances control, and they haven't followed. I think that it's passed, but I'm not quite exactly sure of the current status. It's been it's been fluid for several days. But when they were negotiating that statute, the word appropriate appeared uh, in many places in the amendments to the Toxic Substances Control Act. One of the largest issues in that statute is the role of cost-benefit analysis in controlling toxic substances. And yet, of course, as you know now, the court in Michigan versus EPA strongly suggested that the word appropriate requires an agency to consider costs. What does that do to those ongoing negotiations? What does that do to a statutory process that was underway before the Supreme Court announced this brand new principle? To me, it just is very disruptive to the expectations of Congress, to the people who are asking Congress to change or asking Congress not to change, to all the players in the governmental system to announce brand new rules uh, just uh, is, is... unsettling. I, I would think someone like Scalia would say, though, right, that this is salutary because what the Supreme Court has now done is force Congress to decide that basic question about whether CBA will be required, whether consideration of costs will be required, whereas before it could have used a word like now, that without now, deciding. But it actually makes it harder to do that, Christian, because now, now the word appropriate has become unpredictable to a degree. It's not merely that you have to speak more clearly and we're giving you this this stable signal as a court. It's that um, this word that you thought might not have invoked that, well, now it may invoke it, depending on the uh, the totality of the circumstances. So it's not just a, as I as I read the paper, it's not just the word appropriate; it's appropriate in the in close proximity to the word regulate. Yeah, well, but but before this case, it always was a maybe because it kind of depended on what agency was going to interpret. You know, what administration was going to interpret those words, right? That's right. But look at the process the agencies go through. You know what they're going to do. They, they put out proposals. This is why I highlighted rulemaking at the outset. They put out a proposal. They take comment. They do an incredible amount of outreach on at least the very important rules. 
and then make a final uh, decision and explain why. And so you have a huge amount of notice about what the agency is up to and, uh, and what it's decided and why. And yet now you lob into that process this idea that, well, maybe appropriate means consider costs and maybe it doesn't. And we're not going to exactly say what that even means. We'll let you know once you come back to us, um, you know, once you've done your work. The, the irony is the public process here is actually the agency process. They're arguably more public public-facing and transparent and deliberative than Congress itself. Right. And they're the ones getting hammered. Yeah, and that, that's like one of the fundamental paradoxes of the whole thing, right? If you're actually concerned about accountability, it seems like you would want directly to consider issues of accountability and in devising, in <laughs> right? It, it, that, that's, it's almost, it's an empirical question, right? Unless it's really, it, it's just about theoretical accountability, in which case it might actually be about something else. I don't know. But I, I just want to go back for a second to the, kind of the political economy of the agencies and OIRA and the White House for a second. Because, and I'll tell you why I'm thinking about this. Um, I remember as a kid watching Late Night with David Letterman. It must have been in the 90s. Yeah, it must, have, it must not have been a kid. It must have been a college kid, actually. And Al Gore came on with an, I think it was an ashtray. Oh, and a hammer and goggles. Yes, you remember this, right? And he mm-hmm. was trying, so this is of a piece with the Clinton administration's, you know, cops on the beat, uh, welfare reform. You know, where, whereas, you know, the, the concern would have been that the, the crazy leftists would come in and, and take away the um, cost benefit analysis um, executive order, which required cost benefit. It's going to do all of these kind of lefty things. Clinton came in and said, no, 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 we are we are sensible, but committed to social justice. Right. But we are sensible in how we do it. And so we're going to co-opt or, you know, in some case, be co-opted. You know, that's the critique. Right. We're going to kind of co-opt this language of cost benefit and expand our ideas of what's a cost, what's a benefit. But we're going to do away with stupid stuff like that's Government is going to work. Right. And you can have confidence that government, government works. And one way it's going to work is we're not going to have a regulation dictating how many shards an ashtray breaks into when you hit it with a hammer. Mm-hmm. Right. We're going to allow our agencies to go and buy you know, ashtrays, it shows, shows how dated this is, right? That they're mm. going to buy ashtrays. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they're going to be able to go and buy ashtrays at the Walmart or wherever, like everybody else. Was this an effort to, and, and does this continue into the you know, Obama administration, to blunt the concern about the, uh, about the right having the narrative of kind of out of control, leftist, regulatory, you know, the kind of thing that Justice, Chief Justice Roberts wrote in the opinion about an out of control regulatory states creeping into every area of our lives doing, un, you know, totally insensible things, right? Nonsensible things, crazy nonsense, right? Or is it about, no, we really are pragmatists, right? Yeah, with the right wing is whatever it is. They've gone into the kind of right wing equivalent of the ivory tower and are talking about things which are ideological and have no purchase in everyday life. And now the left, as this pendulum has swung, occupies this kind of centrist, pragmatic notion. And so we're going to do things which are smart and not do things which are stupid. Do you know, I mean, this maybe, yeah. I mean maybe I'm restating the, what I was asking earlier, but I'm wondering if this is like strategy or if it's principle. Honestly, I think it's both, uh, which may be disappointing to you, but I, I do think that the uh, this, this president has been very enthusiastic about uh, technocratic administration and enthusiastic about cost-benefit analysis in particular. And I think he does see, to some extent, the agencies as trying to get at the right answer. And he has, I think, embraced cost-benefit analysis as a way of getting at the right answer. So I think there's, to some extent, it's a matter of 
principle. I think people were surprised by that. I think people didn't necessarily accept, expect that from this president, especially when one of his first acts was to tell the agencies to rethink the process of White House review and to, to rethink whether cost-benefit analysis should be the overarching criterion for regulation. So there's there's some matter of principle, some amount of surprise with that that principle. But as the process works out, I think it's also highly political that, that rules don't always satisfy cost-benefit analysis. Some of the rules that don't, maybe those that are philosophically or politically preferred. Uh, there are large arguments, of course, about whether uh, cost-benefit analysis is the framework you'd use if you wanted to get at the right answer, or the correct answer. And so I think it's both. I don't think it's just a matter of window dressing, at least with this administration. I think it has been part of the administration's kind of self-concept. So, so we've got these three recent cases. You note that uh, Justice Scalia plays a critical role in them. And of course, he's now deceased. Um, so it will remain to see what does the court do, what do lower courts do. I, Frank, speaking per- purely personally, one thing I thought as I was reading King against Burwell, uh, as weird as it seemed to me, was, well, at least they're announcing something only the Supreme Court can do, which is declare an occasion where Chevron has been transcended in some way. Uh, I, I can't imagine lower courts doing that, or if they do... Without it getting to the Supreme Court, you mean? Yeah and, yeah, and certainly not doing it in any quantity, right? But but we'll see. Time will tell. So one thing I'm wondering, just in terms of historical example and, and maybe, you know, th- things rhyming a bit, is it seems like we're headed for an, uh, an eerie against Tompkins moment. Ooh, big guns. Where the, <laughs> where the court... Kind of, but it's it'll be the administrative law equivalent. I so thought instead that was Chevron. Of, instead of well, maybe it's and so maybe it's a Chevron's restoration, right? Mm. But, but it's it's sort of saying, look, state court judges, they can supply the rule of decision just as much as a state statute. Uh, it's a way for the court to step back. Similarly, I guess we really need to return to the the pearl of wisdom that we recognized in Chevron after all this sort of anxiety and agitation about it, uh, revisit that settlement, reaffirm that it's a, a good settlement. Do you think something like that could happen? Well, I, 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 in, in theory, yes. I just wonder how uh, committed some of the justices are to their views that they're waiting for the moment when they have a majority, even if one that might shift the next day, but a majority where they can say something like these cases did. I mean, these were five to four cases, except for King was six to three. And, uh, and so I don't, I don't know that I see the court necessarily coming to rest at the point that you talk about unsaid in all of this, of course, and unsaid what you're saying is that they have there are eight justices now. And so there may well be at some, at some point relatively soon uh, a new member who can stop these shifting majorities in one way or another. Well, I mean, it's either going to be a Democratic appointee or it's going to be a Trump appointee, in which case all bets are off. So that's right. I, for purposes of that's discussion, right. I think we just assume it's a Democratic point, appointee because this isn't even worth doing if it's a Trump appointee, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> what do you mean it's not worth it? He's no, given I, us a list of, of you know, so maybe it's Allison Ide, maybe it's that, Joan Larson, I, maybe I, it's... I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to disparage anybody on those lists. If it's, I, I, I'm just not convinced it will actually be one of those people anyway. Okay. I, Fair I, enough. I just assume the rule of law is going to be a thing of the past if Trump is elected. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a different way to uh, – that. that is, of course, a, a route that some other countries chose in the 30s uh, with various bad consequences. Ooh. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I don't even think I want to leave this part in the show. That's because, a, well, I mean, but, but I'm just I'm simply referencing the fact that Erie uh, is is a 1938 case. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Caroline Products is what a 1941 is that or is it no? It's the same. It's 1938. The 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 really important dis- judicial decisions in the 30s in the United States. Yeah. Which set us on a certain trajectory into the administrative state, among other things. Uh, is uh, it seems I, I to be you. plowed back up yeah, by here, here, these power what, what cases. You know, how, you know how Mark Limley wrote that faith-based IP mm-hmm. um, article, right? Yep. There's a lot of faith-based administrative law going on, although there's a lot of really good empirical work within agencies, and other, but but not a lot of that is filtered out into actual doctrine, right? Okay. And so I think what you're what another way of asking a similar kind of question is: Are we due for the path-breaking case uh, in administrative realism? That says, you know, Justice Scalia was right to be concerned about accountability and that a, a democratic accountability should be the pole star. Let's suppose we could all unify around that what level four principle. And, and that has the and if you truly focus on accountability, then you get all this other stuff for free. But let's be realists about how accountability actually works in our modern society. I don't think we have a case like that. And, and it would be informed by lots of empirical research and it would be open to new research. You know, I guess, may I just push back for a second against the the idea that this would be a wonderful moment? (laughs) I think I'm more conservative than you guys in this sense. I think that the the reason the court went wrong in these three cases in part is it went beyond what it needed to do to decide the cases in front of it. The Supreme Court is just a bad institution if what you want is a co- an institution that's really good at looking at the facts in front of it and the lay of the land and being agile in response to them and being accountable in, in the broad sense we've talked about. The Supreme Court is the last institution you'd want uh, to make those kinds of choices. And so I don't really, I'm not really hoping for a big moment where they announce a a principle that's uh, kind of good for all time and that will purport to solve a bunch of problems. I would like them to address the cases in front of them. And uh, in these cases, I think the justices went wrong by announcing principles that went well beyond that and more expressed their own individual anxieties about this ill-defined sense of government having gotten too big than they did trying to answer, what do these statutes likely mean? What was Congress trying to accomplish? And did the agency's interpretation cohere with what Congress was trying to do? I think the court would have done much better if it had done that. So, Although that itself is a principle. It's an embodiment of a principle. It might not be a statement of a principle. Yes, I agree with you, but right. it's an embodiment of one. Yes, yeah, I mean, I'm right. not saying we need a Brown against Ward for the administrative state or even like a Gideon against Wainwright. Um, 
you, you know, may, maybe what you need is is kind of like, you know, the Supreme Court has been cutting back on patentable subject matter in this series of cases, right? I don't think it goes far enough because, as you know, Joe, I don't think patent should exist at all. But but it, it's it's it's, <laughs> it's marching, an act of Congress. It's marching down the road of trying to do something about patent thickets, right? It has a new way of looking at yeah. like what what of of knowledge, right? And it's starting to reflect society's evolution about thinking about knowledge and its dissemination. And, you know, Chevron, even Chevron itself, right, was not um, was not the Brown against board of the administrative state. It was a big case, but it contains principles that have been elaborated and continued. And it wasn't even a big case when it came up. Right. Exactly. So so maybe all we need is a few cases kind of like these three that establish the power canons, which kind of march the principle in the other direction towards, again, what I think is kind of a more of an administrative realism. Yes. Um, although I'm not sure that's the right lens. I mean, I haven't, this is not, you know, I haven't studied this extensively, so I'm not even sure what that would consist of. But it, it seems right to me that um, a closer study of actual accountability is long past due. I think that's right. I think there are a lot of a lot of um, highly abstract concepts that that are deployed in this area, and it would be nice to have something a little bit more nuanced, including uh, empirics about how people uh, come to perceive accountability. Like, how do people? What are the markers of accountability that people actually look for? I don't think we even know that so much. Uh, although, again, the court speculates about it. For example, in the federalism cases, uh, you know, well, you can't have people commandeer state officials because if they do, then voters won't know who to blame. Well, there's a folk theory behind that about how people understand who to hold responsible. Uh, and it may or may not be similarly in the antitrust state action immunity doctrine from Parker against Brown. The court right. says, oh, that all comes down to being able to hold the state official uh, responsible. Which is, I think, totally anti-realist because, you know, if I had a hypothesis, I would guess that people are more likely to know their senator than they are to know their local representative just by name. Yeah, and it could be time dependent, but, too. That could be true now, even if it wasn't true 100 right. years ago. Right. And so then you get in this debate about whether the rules should encourage people to know their, you know, you get into that debate about the fun the function of rules and the function of law. But, but we've got to give Lisa the last word because yes. she's our honored guest of an awesome paper. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think I think if you're talking about accountability, the last institution in America you would go to is the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to say it better than that. <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. All right, thanks so much. Thank Lisa. you so this much. This has been really, really fun. Appreciate it. Great, thanks for having me.